Hi, I'm your host, Lillian Yang. I'm your host, Fakri Shafai, and you are listening to Food Nonfiction. Hey, food buffs, this is part two of the space episode. If you came to us from clicking the iTunes banner, you're at the right place. This is the episode with our Chris Hadfield interview. As a recap, in part one, we had the first bit of Chris Hadfield's interview, and we spoke to the author of The Martian, out in theaters now as of October the 2nd, 2015. Andy Weir described how his character, Mark Watney, managed to grow potatoes on Mars. Don't you want to know how realistic the story was? Well, we wanted to know. So we found the perfect researcher to answer our questions about growing food on Mars. Can you start by introducing yourself? Sure. My name's Dr. Louisa Preston, and I'm an astrobiologist and planetary geologist. Dr. Preston is an astrobiologist and a planetary geologist. You might be wondering what an astrobiologist studies. Currently, my research is a mixture of studying different types of life forms that live on the Earth in environments that we find on Mars now or may have once existed on Mars in the past and trying to understand how they could survive the environments on Mars and how they survive the environments on the Earth. The other aspects of my research is looking into how human beings may one day be able to survive on the surface of Mars. Dr. Preston's work is crucial to the future of space cultivation. For anyone that imagines a future with humans living on Mars, her research is a step towards making that feasible. We spoke to one such person who hopes to travel to Mars and stay there as a pioneer of the Red Planet. Hi, my name is Chris Patil. Uh, I was trained as a cell biologist and now I'm a scientific language editor. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the United States and someday I might go to Mars. We'll be hearing more from Chris later. First, we need to find out how realistic the book The Martian is in portraying space gardening. Space gardening kind of makes me think of somebody out there with like a big flowing hat. So from the book The Martian, is it true then in the current research that we have that potatoes are kind of the king crop as far as energy efficiency? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Potatoes produce the most calories for the least amount of space. Um, So they would actually, they would be brilliant. They are extremely tough. They can survive um, a lot of environments that we can't, mainly because they are, they've got the soil for protection. Anything in the book which you kind of thought wasn't really realistic as far as growing Um, food? As far as growing food? No, not really. Um, I thought it was a very sensible idea for Andy Weir to place the growing of the crops inside the habitat itself. One of the things astrobiologists consider is whether you would put the crops in the place where the astronauts are living or in a separate greenhouse. Although you want access to the plants, you also want to minimize the amount of work done and the time taken by astronauts to tend the crops. And having to put on a suit to go out into a greenhouse over and over again would make the process of gardening extremely difficult. We asked whether mining the ice from Mars and melting it for water was feasible. Water is obviously going to be paramount and an astronaut would be sent with a certain amount of water and you can create water um, the way they do in the Martian. But yes, that's definitely one of the ideas. There is so much water frozen um, underneath the surface that what we would like to do is obviously mine the water. But you couldn't just melt the ice directly into water. Because the atmospheric pressures, it'd be quite hard to turn it into a liquid straight away. We probably actually have to 
sublimate it, so turn it straight to a gas, and then like they do in the marsh, and actually let that gas condense inside an area and then drop out as liquid water. But yeah, absolutely. But what about growing other crops on Mars, something other than potatoes? How would we grow these crops in a more ideal situation than the one in the book, where the main character is working with odds and ends? So can you go through the main differences of gardening on Mars versus gardening on Earth? Well, so gardening on Earth, um, I guess we take for granted. As long as there's soil, water, and some kind of organic material like bacteria or dead plants, you can grow a variety of crops on Earth. Um, When we go to Mars, um, it's all going to get very difficult very quickly. Um, The soils are dry. They have frozen water in them, but they are dry. So we're going to need to find liquid water and provide them with liquid water. And all of the issues on Mars actually stem to the fact that it has a very low atmospheric pressure. Um, It has a tenth the atmosphere that the Earth does, which means any water that's on the surface would immediately evaporate. So we don't know how plants can even survive at such low atmospheric pressures. So we already know that by going to Mars, we're probably going to have to put them in a greenhouse. That greenhouse would have to have a pressure similar to the Earth it would need to be able to contain liquid water. It would need to be able to let CO2 in for the plants to breathe and let and allow them to release the oxygen they produce. It'll need to protect them from UV radiation because it's really harsh on Mars, but it also needs to allow light in for them to photosynthesize. And then it's going to have to continually be temperature controlled. The temperature on Mars is on average around minus 63 degrees centigrade. So it's much too cold for plants to grow. So there are a lot of issues (laughs) uh, facing farming on Mars. So what we learned from Dr. Preston is that you can grow just about any plant on Mars as long as you're able to build a greenhouse there. So I'm guessing the gravity issue is not something that the uh, greenhouse would be dealing with? Actually, it's not something we're overly worried about. It's something we can't test for um, and we can't plan for because we can't simulate a third of the gravity of the Earth on the Earth. But we've had plants grown on the International Space Station and gravity and basically zero gravity up there seemed to prove no problem for them. There's a wonderful experiment of cress that grew up there and they thought the roots wouldn't know where to go. The roots always travel in the direction of gravity on the Earth. But actually on the space station, the roots just moved in the direction of where there was nutrients and the best way to get to those nutrients so if they can grow on the International Space Station, we actually don't see it being too much of a problem, um, them growing on Mars and how they would react to that. So assuming that you are supplementing energy needs with prepackaged foods, how much space do you think you'd still dedicate to growing food for a single person on Mars? Well, for a single person, I, don't, I can't even imagine what the square footage um, would actually be. And to be honest, that would be limited by our technological capabilities because if we're going to make a greenhouse and it's going to be pressurized, it's going to need to be a certain size to maintain that pressure. But also it needs to be able to be accessible by the astronauts. Um, It needs to have a lot of infrastructure to help it pump the oxygen it produces out of the greenhouse so it doesn't um, uh, suffocate the plants. Um, And we need to be able to move around in it. We just don't know. I guess it would start off being as small as it can be. We'll definitely be choosing crops that take up a little bit of space but produce a high yield from that space. Um, And that's all we know at the moment. 
Have there been any plants that you've tested that just can't survive in your simulated Mars environment? Not yet. There are a lot of plants that would struggle. Theoretically, anything could grow on Mars as long as we provide it with the water and the nutrients it would need. Some plants might really struggle with the reduced gravity, getting half the light they would normally get on Earth, the radiation. They might struggle with temperature on Mars. But that's why we would give them greenhouses. We talk about greenhouses on Mars, but then that requires a lot of technology and a lot of engineering from us and to send with the astronauts to Mars. And so suddenly it all becomes a lot more complicated than just growing the plants. And how do you run experiments on Earth to figure out how to grow food on Mars? There are a number of ways. Obviously, there's a number of aspects of Mars that we can't plan for or test for on the Earth, such as its different gravity. It has one third the gravity that we do on the Earth, and it's very hard to test experiments like that on the Earth. Um, But we are able to manufacture similar soils that we find on Mars. We find those around the flanks of the volcanoes in Hawaii, and we're able to grow different types of plants in those soils to try and understand could plants actually grow in the soil and the earth on Mars? And if so, which plants would be best, which would survive the most? Um, And we also can blast these plants and these potentially even tiny animals such as algae and bacteria with harmful UV radiation. We can lower their temperatures, raise their temperatures and really push them to the limits of their survival, which is what would happen um, if they were on the surface of Mars. By using volcanic soil from Hawaii, we can find out which plants would likely survive the best in the Mars environment. That's a lot of useful information for space travel hopefuls, like Mars One participant Chris Patil. Can you tell our listeners a little about Mars One? Absolutely. Uh, The Mars One project is a privately funded, non-governmental effort to put human beings on the red planet to stay by the year 2026. The parent organization is a nonprofit based in Holland. In 2013, they asked the population of the world at large who wanted to volunteer um, to help colonize Mars. And they did not ask only astronauts or scientists or engineers. They asked anyone who wanted to apply. And many thousands of people applied um, in early 2014. That list was narrowed down to 1,000 based on the primary applications. Um, Over the course of the next year, The remaining candidates underwent medical examinations and interviews. Um, At the beginning of this year, 2015, that list of 1,000 was narrowed down to 100. And next year, that group of 100 will be further narrowed down into 24. Those 24 people will be divided into six crews of four, and those people will start training as astronauts full-time. They'll train for a decade And then one of those crews of four people uh, will go to Mars uh, in 2025. The people that might be sent to Mars on the Mars One mission are meant to stay there for the rest of their lives. Uh, The program plans on sending an additional crew every two years and two months, every time what's called the launch window opens. If we're going to survive on Mars, we wouldn't just be growing things. I think we'd have to have a lot of prepackaged and shelf-stable foods there. So that would be food that's shipped from Earth? Yes, unfortunately. So I think to survive on Mars for a long time, or maybe even permanently, we would need some sort of a resupply so that we can have potentially prepackaged beef burgers and the kind of things they have on the International Space Station, Um, but also shelf-stable ingredients such as pastas that last a long time and herbs and couscous and stuff like that, mixed in with, hopefully, what will then be homegrown fruits and vegetables. 
So how long do you think that would take to transport food from Earth to Mars? Well, the transport would take, I think it would just be a job of a lifetime. I think you would you would have to continually resupply. And that's going to be a major issue if we do send people to Mars. But the setting up and the workings of a greenhouse to grow their own food is going to be of primary importance to get the colonists set up. But it costs around $10,000 um, to send a pound of food up to the space station. So that number is only going to increase as we go further and travel for much longer. And Mars is much, much farther away from Earth than the International Space Station. I asked Chris Hadfield how long it would take to travel to Mars. Hi, I'm Commander Chris Hadfield. So we're going to be talking about Mars food. Can you tell us how long it would take to fly to Mars? Flying to Mars, it depends on which engines you use. You know, nobody's ever been to Mars. So when you ask how long it takes to fly to Mars, you could say it takes forever because nobody's ever been there yet. But if, if you and I decided to go to Mars tomorrow and we use the best rocket ship that we've built so far and went as fast as that rocket ship could let us go, it would take about five months to get to Mars. And, you know, you got to slow down and land when you get there. So, you know, maybe six months and then six months to get back. So if you and I were going to Mars, it would be a year to get there and back. And what kind of food would you be bringing to eat? Well, when you're going on a trip, you kind of think, how am I going to prepare my food? And, and how long will the food last? Like, you probably, if you were going hiking, you wouldn't bring ice cream because, you know, it's, it's going to melt. Or you wouldn't bring a, a, a raw turkey to roast if, if you were <laughs> hiking because you're not going to be able to cook it. And when you're in a spaceship, it's the same thing. We don't have an oven and we don't have a microwave and we don't have a refrigerator. And, and so it limits the food that you could have. And also, in order to lift the food off the surface of the world, you want the food to be as light as possible. So the food we'd bring on the way to Mars would be like dehydrated and as simple to eat as possible, especially food that you can rehydrate, put water into so that it, the food was light. And then you can recycle the water so that, um, so that you have as little weight and, and volume on your spaceship as possible. So going to Mars, it would sort of as if you and I were going on a year-long camping trip and we had to carry all of our food with us in our backpacks. That's the sort of food we'd have. And would you be eating something different when you reach the International Space Station? Uh, the space station's a little uh, more convenient than going to Mars because it's, it's orbiting the world. And a new ship comes up with supplies every month or every six weeks. So your food doesn't maybe need to last quite as long. And also, it's, it's a real treat. Every ship that comes up just before on Earth, the technicians close the hatch on the ship to put it on the rocket. They put in a little bit of fresh food, like some oranges or apples or onions or, or bananas even. And so when the ship comes up from the Earth and comes up and docks with your spaceship and you equalize the pressure and you open up the hatch, the first thing you smell is, is fresh fruit. It's such a lovely smell after living in sort of an antiseptic space station for a few months. So you get a little more variety of food on the space station. But we're testing food on the space station. How, how do you keep people healthy? What sort of food lasts a long time so, uh, so that we will learn how to go to Mars? So a lot of the food on the space station is exactly the same as the food that, uh, that the people that go to Mars will eat. 
So what would be your favorite meal in space? Lillian, when you are in weightlessness, when you're on board a spaceship, of course, you're weightless and you're, you're floating around. If you think about it, there's no way for your sinuses to drain. Like you and I sitting here right now, we're sitting with our heads pointed up. And so all of the, the stuff that normally collects in your sinuses, even the spit in your mouth, it's always being pulled down into your body by gravity. Imagine if you were standing on your head the whole time we did this interview or for the whole day. The, all the fluid would sort of uh, collect in your head and in your sinuses. And so what that means for eating food is you can't really taste your food very well because your sinuses are plugged up and your tongue's a little bit swollen. It's like you have a really, really bad head cold all the time that you're in space. So that means that a lot of your food, you can't taste the subtle flavors of it. And so you want spicy food. And so uh, we have a lot of wasabi up there and horseradish and and hot sauces and mustard. We, we put that on almost everything just because we need the flavors exaggerated. And one of those little pouches of food that we that we inject the water into is actually dehydrated shrimp, but it's shrimp cocktail. And of course, when you eat that red shrimp cocktail, it's got a lot of really hot horseradish in it. And so strangely enough, um, my favorite space food is shrimp cocktail because, <laughs> because the shrimp, you know, when you when you bite into a shrimp, it's got sort of that texture to it. It's got sort of a fibrous texture, and that does pretty well with dehydrating. And then the sauce almost clears out your sinuses like a decongestant. So uh, if, if you and I were on our way to Mars, we'd be eating shrimp cocktail together. That's super interesting. Would that be something you would eat at home, or would you pick something else? Oh, I, I, shrimp cocktail is pretty rare at home. It's it's a special treat kind of food. And also on Earth, uh, your 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 palate, your your way of sensing and tasting food is normal. So you can you can eat much more regular, delicate food. And of course, you could have fresh food. So uh, my my space diet was significantly different than my than my normal Earth diet. So what would be your favorite food on Earth? Uh, I like variety. One day just having a hamburger and then one day pizza and then uh, Chateaubriand. I love uh, brie cheese and I love creme brulee. And, uh, well, I, but I, I'm not a very picky eater. I grew up on a farm with two brothers and two sisters. So, you know, food is great. And, and uh, especially food that somebody else made for me. That To me, that's just... <laughs> But I've been lucky enough to eat in restaurants all around the world, and my mom is a good cook, and my wife is a chef by profession. So I, I've eaten all different types of wonderful food all around the world, and, and I like it all. Food is a big part of life. It, it's a big part of the pleasures of life, and, and a way, in fact, to sort of directly appreciate different cultures of the world. It is. It's uh, three meals a day. It's my favorite time of day. <laughs> Three meals a day, 26,000 days. Yeah, that, that's a lot of chances to sample something new. So is there any other fun space food facts that you have for the listeners? It's really fun to eat candy on a spaceship. And we, we bring a lot of chocolate. In fact, you can't have a table, really. So every chocolate bar has Velcro on it. And we would normally have a whole wall with Velcroed chocolate. On it because you're busy and you're working hard and as you're flashing through and and uh, and trying to get stuff done on the spaceship it's really nice just to be able to grab a bite of something on the way through so imagine if you could live life with a wall of 
that had chocolate Velcro to it. It's, uh, I don't think most people know that. And it's a real delight to have. And when you're eating little candies, say like, uh, you know, little um, candy coated chocolate M&Ms or Smarties or something like that, they're in a package. It's fun to open it up and then float them in the air. And you can go around like Pac-Man and uh, <laughs> one of those little candies out of the air. Or if you and I were eating there, I could take one out of the package and float it, and it would float right across the whole room. And you could, like, like a, like a basketball player catching it. You could, you know, catch it in your mouth. Or if you, when you get good at it, like a hockey player or, or a pool player, you can bounce it one off the wall and into somebody else's mouth. We play with our food all the time up in space because who wouldn't? That's amazing. I'm like all my imagination is kicking with the Velcro chocolate wall. <laughs> Here we go. Thanks, Chris Hadfield, for letting us use your amazing music in this podcast. Go to uh, go to chrishadfield.ca, and there's a whole section on music. And then, uh, yeah, I'm really proud of this album. It's it's the first complete body of music from off the planet ever. It's it's kind of a a big step and. And it's uh, Warner Music is making the album. I'm really proud of it. And we'll be having the big public announcement August 7th, I think. And then the album will be available in early October. This is Dr. Louisa Preston, and you are listening to Food Nonfiction. This is Andy Weir, and you're listening to Food Nonfiction. I'm Commander Chris Hadfield, and you're listening to Food Nonfiction. I'm going to ride.